Your Steve Jones Show podcast is loading now. The Steve Jones Show podcast is sponsored by Sunbury Motors, North 4th Street in Sunbury, and Sunbury Motors Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Sports talk where your voice counts. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Kia, routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. We'll get to the play-by-play call of the day in a moment. But to me, this is this is not, a, in my opinion, a good day for college football. It is announced today that Miami quarterback Tate Martell is eligible to play immediately after the NCAA approved his waiver request. I'm sorry. But now we might as well just say it. We have full-blown college football free agency. There is no way on the planet that he has anything that could be construed as a waiver other than I need to get away so I have a chance to play someplace else. There's no grievance here. What's a grievance? What is his grievance with leaving Ohio State? The fact they brought in Justin Fields to compete against him? His position coach became his head coach. He has three years of eligibility remaining. But this was the one I've been waiting to see. The other one's okay. You can come up with whatever. But when I see somebody who has no other reason to transfer except he doesn't want to face the competition and is granted immediate eligibility to play... That, to me, tells me they might as well do away with the rule. You might as well do away with it. Because Tate Martell, there is no excuse, in my opinion, on the planet, under the current rules that would make him eligible to play right away at Miami, other than the fact that he looked at the competition and said, I really don't have the guts to compete. So it comes down to He didn't have the guts to compete against him. So, in other words, I'm going to quit, which he did, and then he went to Miami. And the NCAA said, yep, we're good with that. This this is, of all the ones we've seen, and you know I've mentioned this a couple of times on the show, I'm waiting to see what they do with Tate Martell that will tell us the direction the NCAA is going in. They gave him eligibility. Right away. Sorry, he transferred. He should have sat a year. Because the only reason he transferred was he's trying to somehow get himself into a better position to start. When he, you know, one day I'm going to compete with this guy. Next day I'm gone. Then he gets his petition, and the NCAA lets him do it. I just, sorry. It's... I realize that we've got to think modern all the time and so forth. I'm sick of all this thinking modern all the time stuff. I really am. This is the way the modern system is. What well, doesn't mean it's the right system? Also, I mean, you, you, I don't know. There are many jobs out there, many jobs, that do have non-compete clauses. Where if you want to go someplace, you've got to sit out six months, got to sit out nine months, got to sit out a year. Media, a lot of media is like that. 
You'll see a media personality on the air. They switch stations, but you don't see them for six to nine months. I mean, so in my business, our business, is very much like that. Happens all the time. So this is not unusual until this stuff starts happening. There is no way in his petition that he could possibly have an excuse for going there, except I did not want to compete with Justin Fields, and I think I can win the job at Miami. That's the only reason he's going. And they let him get away with it. Nice. Well, now I think you feel like if anything happens, assistant coach leaves. Head, you know, the head coach. I mean, this is a case the head coach, his position coach became the head coach. Where's the problem here? His head coach retired, but his position coach and his coordinator became the head coach. Where's the issue? like they're afraid to say no they are afraid to say no okay uh, let's get to the play-by-play call of the day Rosen crosses over Thompson at the elbow right now to the left wing Bellinelli for three Bellissimo plus one the foul is on Kevin Durant it's number five on Durant and Marco Bellinelli goes to the free throw line as the Spurs now lead by eight, 93-85. And the Spurs beat the Warriors, who have slumped down the stretch. Sounds like the Warriors are bored right now. Sean? Sean? Yeah, they're just, I thought, they're, they're just waiting to turn. I thought, I, thought, I, thought, I thought you'd become the Warriors. That was boring you. All right. <laughs> they, they, they just didn't seem themselves like the, the last oh, night. But it's like, they hey, but they, it's, you know, they still Two got a month weeks. away to flip the switch, you know? Two weeks they've been like that. Yeah. It's, you know. I mean, when you're that good, you get bored. I mean, it's like when you get to game eight of the Shikolimi football season, you can tell a certain someone's bored because right? they're, they're just that good. All cruise right, Cruise control. We're going downhill to the playoffs at that point, right? Right. Well, when you feel like you peaked in August. All right, so. Oh, his favorite month of the year. That's right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. All right, let's uh, talk college basketball. I mean, anything about wrestling you want to add? No, we're good. We're good till Thursday. Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I keep trying to tell you. <laughs> Thursday. We'll get to it Thursday. Actually, I've, right? already, I've already taken a peek inside uh, uh, the PPG Paints Arena. They're going black mat, blue mat. They're going black, blue, black, blue, black, blue. So t- t- two colors going back and forth for eight mats to start. Should have been black and gold. All right. Yeah, how about uh, it? They've used different they, colors like before, green and red, but just uh, black and blue mats it, this year. It looks the Penguins Arena. Use black and gold. Sure. Right. Black and yellow. All right. Let's bring uh, Ken Pomeroy, KenPom.com. Yes, I am a subscriber. Welcome, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me back on the show, guys. Appreciate it. Okay. Obviously, for many years, in its time, the RPI was fine, but that time was probably 20, 25 years ago. What was, what was to you, as someone who, who crunches numbers, what made the RPI eventually antiquated in your mind? Uh, the main, there are uh, kind of a bunch of things, but 
the main thing was that it didn't you know, a couple of things one home and road weren't really accounted for right. very well uh, you know for many years they wasn't accounted for at all and then really I think in the last 10 years they tried to make an adjustment to account for that but it didn't apply to strength of schedule it was really weird how they did it so when you were talking about a team strength of schedule it didn't didn't consider where the games were played which uh, was odd and then I guess the second thing is that uh, you know they didn't handle they didn't even consider margin of victory which I think if you're selecting teams you want to not handle margin of victory you know you want to look just at the team's resume but as the RPI is basically not used specifically for selection but as like an organizational tool to kind of grade the quality of wins in that case you you want a ranking of team strength like that's ultimately we evolved to this season was you know you got credit for beating the you know the 40th best team in the country where in the RPI you weren't ranking who the best teams in the country were you're ranking right. kind of like who had the best schedules you know with some adjustment for how they did against that schedule it was, mathematically it was it, it was just messed up it was as you said it was like great in 1981 when yeah computers were limited but now we can do better when you look at how the field was put together uh, what did you like about it and what based on your statistical knowledge didn't quite jive with what you thought was correct well I think they did a really good job uh, first of all with seeding yes yeah they weren't uh, maybe that's just how the year worked out I you know I need to kind of go back and and look at things but uh, there weren't teams that were like oddly seated you know mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's like you know you look you look at kind of like the Vegas odds and they kind of line up pretty much with the seeds this year which is pretty rare so kudos for that I think as far as the selection goes like they did mainly a good job with the tools they have I think you know we can still take another step forward in, in the tools used in terms of evaluating a team's full resume I think the the biggest disappointment for me was St. John's getting in. Oh, uh, what, what's yeah. the first thing I said? What's the first thing I said? The other day? That's the one team I looked at and said, "Do not belong." Yeah, you know, the Big East wasn't that great this year. So, they, first of all, get sub five hundred in the Big East and and still get in is like stunning. But I, what kind of bugs me about their situation? They didn't. They didn't play a strong non-conference schedule. They, right. you know, went eight and ten or whatever in the Big East and. Um, Villanova and Marquette were in the net rating. They were ranked like 26 and 28, which St. John, by virtue of beating both those teams at home, got credit for quad one wins. But those were like the very easiest quad one wins you could have had. And I, right. I feel like the committee just looked at quad one record and didn't necessarily consider within that group, you know, how difficult the wins were. And uh, you know, Villanova or Marquette had been 30. First and thirty second, like St. John's, I think has no shot of getting in, and that's really not how it should work. Like, right? So that was different thing being ranked twenty eighth and thirty second, really. Like, so yeah, in my opinion, that was the the one that I think if we'd used almost any other objective system, like St. John's is not getting in. Right, and I, I told that's a that's in fact that's ironically when we talked about the field on Monday, the only one I brought up was St. John's that I, I said should not be in. Um, all right, I want to get to the Michigan State situation. I, it, it's fine that there are two, all right, but I don't get why, as the fifth overall team in this bracket, which is what they are in the S curve, they're five. Why they're in the same group with the number one overall seed? Look, we have airplanes today. You can move. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I mean, obviously, you know, the NCAA doesn't currently have a policy to balance the regions in that way. Uh, you know, they're they're concerned about minimizing travel, and I I believe that comes from the the, the institutions themselves. Like, I believe that's been the, the message that they've sent is that they don't want to travel far. Um, I mean, in the end, I don't think it's a big deal just because. Uh, first of all, they, they won't meet until the Elite Eight. And, right. you know, if you're, whether you're Duke or Michigan State, like, your goal in the basketball world is to, to win a championship. And so, you know, it's one thing if they have to meet, like, in the Sweet 16 or the second round or something. But if you're meeting in the Elite Eight, like, you're going to have to beat some great teams to win a national title. Um, at least that's usually how it works. So the fact that they ended up in the same region doesn't, doesn't really offend me. I, I do understand your point. In a perfect world, the brackets would be totally balanced. But yeah, this is this is not a, a perfect world. And I think the reason it's not, <laughs> I think the reason it's not because the schools have requested that. And so if you know, if enough people like Tom Izzo complain about it, I guess there there could be changes in the future. Yeah, in your in your in the in the Kempom rankings at this hour, Virginia is the one. I mean, the number one team overall. Statistically, what makes them that one spot? As opposed to a Gonzaga and a Duke, which are the two, three right behind them. Yeah, so I mean, in a very simple sense, I'm looking at you know scoring margin and adjusting that for the schedule. Right. Um, so Virginia, I mean, even it's you know just adjusted for pace as well. So, but I mean, what's phenomenal about Virginia is yeah, they play at that, still play at that characteristically super low possession pace. Yes. Um, but. <laughs> They were rarely challenged at all this year during the regular season. People are, you know, seeing that Florida State resolve in the ACC tournament and kind of downgrading them. But that was that was the worst game of the year. Like they didn't have any other bad games during the season. You know, they were challenged once by NC State. You know, game went to overtime. But otherwise, they, you know, that was lost the two Duke games. But in their wins, they weren't close. And so, I mean, the thing about Virginia this year is their offense is, is the best that Tony Bennett's ever had. You know, it's, their offense ranked second. Actually, their defense ranked fifth. Their defense is still great, but it's not like clearly the best in the country like it was last year and you know that's really a profile that actually I think goes well you don't you really don't see national titles just get there solely with defense like most national titles are better offensively than defensively and so um, it might make you know Tony Bennett like uh, not feel so great about the team because he takes so much pride in his defense but really like this team is is built to, to win a title the pace is another matter but certainly you just look at their offense and the defensive numbers and they they look really really good. No question. The NCAA. The only other criticism I'll have of the committee is this, and it's it just, and I don't understand why they did this, but I don't understand why you would put the student athletes at Minnesota and Louisville, right, in a position where they have to talk about Rick Pitino, Richard Pitino. And that matchup, that that to me was wrong. What they did. Why should Chris Mack have to talk about that? Why should Richard Pitino have to talk about his father? I don't, you know, you can match a seven ten up any way you want, right? You can pick somebody. That part I didn't get. Yeah, my understanding is that they are pretty blind to those issues. Like it's just so. Well, they better wake up because that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> it's so complicated to put together a bracket with all the rules and restrictions they have that. Uh, you know they just they just don't have the time to like consider all these 
conflict. Like, uh, there's another one where, like, Arizona State got to play Buffalo, and I realize there's no, like, controversy right. surrounding that matchup. But still, you know, Bobby Hurley is going against his old team, which is kind of awkward. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's – I mean, in, in the matchup you're talking about, it's primarily I, – I feel like Richard Pitino is going to be the one fielding yes. 90% of those questions. Like, this, this, you know, the players and the and Chris Mack are not – you know, they might get a question or two, but – they're not really directly involved in that situation like Richard Pitino is. Sure, exactly. I agree with you uh, on that part. He is going to be the one that's going to have to get up and have to really talk about it because you're going to, have to be asked about it. Uh, NC State was critical of what happened. I think they are 33 in yours. I want to say they're 33 in the net as well. Does NC State have an argument? Uh, well, there's two answers to that. I mean, one, you know, they famously played the worst non-conference schedule in the country, and typically yeah. that is... <laughs> Almost disqualifying, you know, when you're a bubble team. It basically hasn't been disqualifying in the past. Right. I do think it. I think in a perfect world they would get in. Like what they did in, in ACC play. You know, basically the way to think about this is like, how would another bubble team have done against NC State's schedule? Would they have been able to do better? And I think NC State would have done better than most bubble teams against that schedule. Um, so that's how I'd approach it. The other thing is, you know, we talk about St. John's. I mean, their their non-conference schedule is awful as well. So if you're going to put a team in that has an awful non-conference schedule, <laughs> I would put the team that is more accomplished, that did had a better record in a better league, and that would be NC State. So on the one hand, I'm, I don't feel terribly sorry for them, but I do feel like uh, you know the fair situation would have had them in certainly over St. John's. Ken uh, Dick Vitale's the one that every year will come out and say, "Oh, the little guy, the little guy." I'll talk about the mid-major, especially getting in when you and I both know that this tournament is populated with a lot of little guys. <laughs> okay, we're going to watch two of them play tonight. Uh, in fact, we're going to watch three of them play tonight because Belmont's a mid-major. Um, how do you feel about that, like the Lipscombs of the world and so forth, uh, you know, as to where that stands? Uh, I think so. I think we can do better, again, just in terms of like how we – Evaluate overall resumes. Um, I I do like I think just kind of labeling a team a mid major or a, right. you know power conference team. I think that uh, kind of hurts the the debate a little bit. Like I, I would just like to about yeah I would just like to evaluate these teams on on their uh, on their overall accomplishment. Like uh, you know you also get into the issue like Temple playing tonight. Temple like what are they? They're not really in a power conference, but. You know, they're cool being called a mid-major. Like, I know Cincinnati wouldn't be cool being called a mid-major. So right. that's part of the problem with the labeling. But, you know, so to get back to your point, UNC Greensboro, you know, they go, I think, 29-6 and six against their schedule. Right. Don't have, like, a whole bunch of quality wins. But, again, if you take Arizona State or you take St. John's and you play them against UNC Greensboro's schedule, like, we have the tools now to, to get an idea of what we would expect them to do in those cases. And they probably wouldn't go, you know, through that schedule only losing six games. And so I think that's the way to apply it. So whether you're talking about a team in the Southern Conference or the Pac-12, which was weak this year, or the Big Ten, which was super strong, like you can apply this method to all those teams and have a fair system based on your total accomplishment instead of just looking at, you know, hey, what are the team's three best wins? What are their three worst losses? Because, I, you know, I will admit, like, that is something that's always going to hurt the UNC Greensboro's of the world. Like, they're never going to have three great wins just because, uh, you know, their schedule will not have more than, you know, three or four great teams on it. And you know darn well I have to ask this question. In the top 69, your top 69, there's only one team under 500, and that is, at number 40, Penn State. What made Penn State's metrics really good that kept them in that 
that 40 range almost all season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they you know certainly after that 0 and 10 starting conference play, they were they were dinged a little bit, but obviously got it going down the stretch. And uh, I mean, part of it is playing in the conference they played in. You know, the Big Ten first of all is is really tough, and actually, no team in the country uh, played a one team in the country played a more difficult conference schedule than Penn State. That was Maryland. So you know, when you look at Penn State's conference schedule, like a team would roughly be rated about 30th if they went 500 against that schedule. Like, right. If he was rated 30th, would be expected to go 500 against that schedule. That's how good you had, would have had to have been to go 500, basically. Um, so that's part of it. And part of it is they, you know, they did play a pretty challenging non-conference schedule when you mm-hmm. look back at it. They didn't have any easy games uh, in non-conference play. And obviously, you know, they got the win over Virginia Tech, which, uh, you know, in retrospect, I think at the time looked good, and in retrospect looked good as well. And they were competitive in their their other games for the most part, and certainly competitive in their losses in Big Ten play. And, and when they did win, they tended to win big. So, you know, scoring margin comes into play. So all of those factors came together. And, yeah, I mean, it was obviously – I think people finally woke up, you know, at the end of the season. It was like, yeah, we really don't want to play Penn State in the Big Ten tournament, <laughs> even though their, their record isn't so good. They're obviously playing like a, a top 50-type team. And, uh, you know, it was nice to see. It's always nice to see teams with uh, kind of – out of place records and that are ranked high in my system kind of prove themselves at the end, like kind of justify that rating. So it was, it was nice to see from that standpoint. Yeah, it's interesting because at the end of the Minnesota game, I pointed out to people. I said for Minnesota, it was a huge win because Penn State was a quad one win. Okay, right. they were in the top fifty in the net on a neutral court. Right, and it's like, oh, that can't be. It's like. Know the rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was kind of the beauty of the net this year too. That, you know, that, that, in the RPI, you know, it, it wouldn't have been a quad one win, but right, that's um, exactly right. Yeah, uh, yeah. The net kind of was able to see through some of those things and, and analyze it, you know, much better than the RPI did in the past. Can I ask you one final question? Is 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 what the net does? Are they transparent enough with that? Because obviously, what you do is transparent. I can click on whatever I want here. Of course, I'm a subscriber, but I cl- as, as to what everything means and why, are they transparent enough as to what net actually means? No, I mean they're they're clearly not. That was you know, I, I, I do love the fact they changed. You know, they got past the RPI and got to the net, even if it's still imperfect. But that is the one thing that I really was disappointed in the NCAA on is that they did not you know publish previous seasons ratings and uh, furthermore, like even this season, the tools that you have to kind of you know, look on their website at the net. Like it was, it just wasn't updated frequently. The strength of schedule was really never posted in a, an easy to access way. Like, yeah, there are a lot of issues with that that I think they really need to iron out this off season. It'll really, I think, help you know, just relate us to the general public when you can see the past ten years of data. Like, you can get a much better feel for how the system works. Like, you don't have to, you don't have to release the formula. I don't, you know, you don't need to do that. I realize right. it's really complicated, yeah. but you know, if you can see past results, you can get a feel for how it works. Right. Exactly. Ken, always, always a pleasure. As you know, Dick Girardi and I reference you many times on the broadcast, so we appreciate uh, all the help that you actually give us because I think uh, it makes our work uh, easier and more enjoyable. Appreciate you having me on, Steve, and uh, thanks for all the support. Ken Pomeroy, KenPom.com. Final half hour coming up. Neil Kulong in the house on News Radio 1070 WKOK. 
When it comes to car buying, there's the other guy's way, and then there's the SMC way. The other guys force you into a vehicle you really don't want. The Subway Motors way lets you take the time you need to browse, ask questions, and take the test drive and think on it. For over 100 years, the Mertz family and all their employees have made your experience the most pleasant one you'll ever have. The other guys won't offer you the best price for your trade, no matter how much they say they will. The SMC way is their promise to provide you with the most money the market shows your vehicle is worth. The SMC way is to offer you all applicable factory rebates on new vehicles and generous discounts. Looking for a pre-owned vehicle? The SMC way checks each vehicle in a 200-mile radius to determine the lowest price, then beat it. It's the lowest price promise, just part of the SMC way. The choice is up to you. The other guy's way or the SMC way? The SMC way wins every time. Sunbury Motors Company in the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury, and at sunburymotors.com. Selling more cars and satisfying more customers for over 100 years. Taking your calls at 800-795-9565. This is the Steve Jones Show on News Radio 1070 WKOK. Now from the Sunbury Motors Studio, here's Steve Jones. Sunbury Motors, 4th Street in Sunbury. Sunbury Motors, Key Routes 11 and 15 in Hummel's Wharf. Bad day for college football. Tate Martell granted immediate eligibility at Miami, transferring from Ohio State. He should have sat out a year. Okay. There's nothing in that paperwork. There's no way in the planet you should have been eligible. The sport dramatically changed today with that. Now I think anybody can go anywhere they want, whenever they want. We don't want Neil Kulon going anywhere, just staying with us. Hello, Neil. Probably not even before that. North Dakota State hasn't made the tournament in a couple of years. I'm not sure what channel it was on that uh, that night back, and I think what 2015. Yes. Um, Gonzaga beat him by like 30. I'm not channel. I'm not sure what channel that was on, but yeah. I, I watched it then. Um, I will have to find it. I know that <laughs> how often I pull through the cable package I'm paying for. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, so the cable. I mean, the cable package. If you have to take out a loan to take care of it, maybe it's overpriced. All right. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Exactly right. All right. Uh, let's uh, – the Steelers – Tom Bradley was obviously here today, and he wanted to take a look, at, obviously, at the DBs here. Uh, would you be surprised if the Steelers go through this draft and not at least not select one? I think if, if we if we group them together as defensive backs, um, I would say yes. I think it's odd a team um, wouldn't bring in at least one somewhere. Uh, those are typically core special teams guys. You always need depth. There are a lot of positions, um, a lot of different ways that teams are using defensive backs nowadays. Um, with that, it, you know, generally speaking, I, I would think they'd bring in one somewhere. Uh, that said, I don't think cornerback is, is as much a priority as it has been the last couple of years. I mean, the, the signing of Steven Nelson, I think, really opens up some things for them um, in terms of the draft. Just because, I mean, you know, it, it, it's weird to say, but they have a fairly solid nucleus of, of cornerbacks outside men. You're looking at Joe Hayden, who's still got another year in his contract. Extension isn't out of the question at this point. Uh, Nelson signed a three-year deal. Mike Hilton is coming up on free agency, though, at some point. Um, for now, and maybe for, for two years, you've got something of uh, a, a solid group of three cornerbacks that can play. They've shown they can play in the NFL. Um, 
from there, you've got uh, the greatest draft pick ever, Artie Burns, probably fighting for a roster spot along mm-hmm. with a guy like Cam Sutton. And whatever else they might do uh, within the draft, uh, the development of undrafted free agents that they've had in camp in the past, uh, they, they, they'll have options. I'm not entirely sure they want to bring another one in, but I also said last year they wouldn't have two safeties drafted. So uh, you, you've always got to address special teams and future needs. So I, I, I wouldn't rule it out, but I definitely don't think it's going to be a priority, certainly not in the first uh, four rounds that they have this year. How do you see Mark Barron fitting? I have no clue. Um, and I think that's Mark Barron's – the reason Mark Barron has played for half the teams in the NFL now is because of that. You're not entirely sure uh, who he is. He clearly has a mentality of, of an inside linebacker, not quite as big, I think, as you would like, but it, it's getting smaller and smaller in the back seven nowadays. You know, A guy like Barron, I think, it can show some justification playing inside um, against certain teams. I, I think he's a, a matchup type of guy. Um, and when I say that, what I look at is uh, the, the playoff game between the Chargers and the Ravens last year. If you look at what Gus Bradley did with the Chargers in positioning his defense to go up against a, a, a power-heavy uh, Ravens front, um, they put a lot of small, fast guys on the field, and they just shot gaps everywhere. The Ravens, uh, their interior line in particular, couldn't get to, to these blitzing safeties that were attacking downhill and just getting in running lanes, and they stuffed the run the entire day. I mean, they were a, a, Chargers were a, a fairly decent run defense, not a great one, but they shut Baltimore down exactly where they stood, largely because they just outmaneuvered them. They outquicked them to, to every spot, and I think a guy like Barron can give you some of that versatility uh, if you're going to go into a, a very light, like, you know, six should be defensive back look. Not exactly a dime package, but uh, enough to be able to cover uh, probably better than John Bostic if he can't attack downhill in the same way. But he gives you that versatility if, if they need a physical guy that, that will bang heads and get to a spot. I, it, it gives them, I think, a, a, a competitive piece to go up against a team like Baltimore that, that's going to run the ball down your throat um, and still be light enough to be able to handle uh, tight ends down the seam, which is really Baltimore's offense. So I think in a lot of ways, uh, Barron complements their defense in a matchup like that. And I think we're going to see more teams um, looking to, to exploit um, the, the personnel decisions a lot of teams have made lately and getting smaller in their secondary to combat you know four or five receiver sets that so many teams play. Yeah, that was going to be my next point. My next line of question, Neil, was about Mark Barron, I think, has done a good job of keeping himself relevant in the league. I think you'd, you'd agree with that because, obviously, he's still playing. Because when he was at Alabama, they played Penn State, and I was not enamored with his cover skills watching watching tape or even seeing him in person. But I knew he'd be an NFL pick. But he's kept himself relevant. Has the changing of the league helped keep him relevant? Because now, I mean, essentially, you're—he's not really a hybrid because he's not big enough to be a linebacker. But he's that extra defensive back out there. You play out there all the time. It's kind of funny because I think he—he is the more literal definition of the hybrid. When we talk about the hybrid, people think of this advanced, elite, athletic player. Whereas in reality, what it is. It's a combination of two positions, and he doesn't play either one of them exceptionally well. Exactly. Uh, the gamble that Tampa Bay took, taking him eight overall, um, they, you, you'd think at least that they had something of a, a plan for him to develop. That never happened. He's bounced around uh, the league in a bunch of places because he's 
he's a specialty player, and you're not exactly sure what the role for him is. It's going to depend on the defense and what they do with him. And a lot of it, I think, anyway, is exactly what they tried to do uh, with Morgan Burnett last year. And Burnett comes out after the season saying he doesn't really want to play that way anymore. So, okay, uh, he's out, and you, you bring in um, uh, Barron, theoretically, to be uh, uh, some, something of a step up over a John Bosick in coverage but something of a, a step down against the run. So you look at specialty positions that you can put him in. The gamble is, is he good enough to justify having that roster spot despite not really being one of either position? Um, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see what they do with them, but my guess is this is really the, the Steelers' uh, ultimate plan to figure out a way to get eight defensive backs on the field, with, with Barron being one of them and you know guys standing up all over the field except for three of them that have their hands on the ground. That that kind of seems to be what Mike Tomlin wants to do. I mean, they, they've put so much emphasis on the secondary and trying to find um, as deep a, a position unit as they can get. Barron adds to that. Um, I, I think it gives them perhaps some insurance for some downs uh, throughout the season to, you know, as a, a, a linebacker or at least a guy in the middle of the field that's going to kind of move around. Um, I, I'm not, I, I think it's a reasonable signing. I don't think they paid yeah, a whole lot for him. Right. But top to bottom, you're, just, you're not sure the role he's going to play. And I'm not sure it's not going to be one of those things where he's doing something in week one that's completely different to what he's doing in week 17. To me, he's a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none. I mean, that's that's yeah, I don't think I there's any other way to describe it. It, it really that's him. That, that's been his career. Um, he'll continue to do it. I mean, the Steelers only gave him a two-year contract. Keep right. that in mind. What that means is we're going to give you some money up front. We're going to save some on our salary cap because we can dump it in next year and take you know a little bit of a dead a, a, a dead money hit to get rid of you. You know, it, it's it's essentially a one-year deal uh, with some flexibility of the team to get out of it after a year. Right. Uh, now that everybody has gone someplace else where um, Le'Veon Bell flushed $14.5 million of his life down the drain, and Antonio Brown worked out his magic to get a better deal by quitting, have things settled down in the Berg? It's really hard to top all that, isn't it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> anything's stepped down. We're talking unprecedented moves uh, within the NFL, not just within uh, the Steelers organization. Um, neither of those things have really happened before, certainly not in this salary cap era. Right. So um, you have to think that things will kind of, you know, die down a little bit. You're not sure if um, there really is anything left or anything else for, for anybody to say. But I do think it's interesting, by and large, um, you're not hearing much from any of the Steelers who are back there that's not generally optimistic, positive about their upcoming season. Um, it, it's It's not even – you know, questionable in terms of a, a, a social setting. They're really just kind of saying, "I'm excited for this. I'm going to go and do that." Right. Um, it, it's a little bit different than what it's been when you're you're f5ing the key to to see what Brown's going to tweet about next. Uh, you don't really have that anymore, and it, it, there's an eerie calm uh, surrounding the team right now, heading into a draft that, to be honest, it, it, all signs to me kind of point to a move up. I, I I really don't think they want to draft ten guys. Um, for the roster that they have, the, the guys that they have in place, um, not that you know having 10 selections is bad. I think they, they just might mm-hmm. be a little bit more incentivized this year to, to try to move up from where they are. Because you picking 20 overall, that's sort of no man's land. You know, you you've, uh, you might be able to get a better player if you you know slot together a couple third round picks, uh, which haven't been incredibly successful for you over the last couple of years anyway. 
Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I think for me, um, I think a lot of it rests on Devin Bush. I think he's the type of player uh, they would love to have. Um, I also think it's going to be tough for him to get out of a top ten. But yeah, at the I same agree time, yeah. if, if come pick 11, he's on the board, I wouldn't be surprised if the Steelers try to make a move to get up and get him. I, I really think he fits a lot of what they want to do. And he's a player that they need. You know, without Ryan Shazier, they, they really right. need that, that future developing uh, alpha dog of the defense. And I, I think he fits that bill in a lot of ways. Bush, to me, is a lot like Ryan Shazier in terms of lateral movement, speed, quickness. But the, but I always felt, even in college, Ryan Shazier had better cover skills than what I saw from Devin Bush. That That's how yeah, I, I, I look at them in college. A, a big part of that, too, is Shazier was so long. Oh, my you know, goodness. He, he, was, he was super lanky. He was yep. like that 175-pound wrestler. Those guys all looked like super tall, <laughs> yeah. really long limbs. Um, that was Shazier. I mean, he was like a spider. He didn't hit guys in the shoulder. He just kind of you know wrapped them yeah. up and, and you know, brought them to the ground. Um, with that, you, had, you have a, a pretty significant uh, inherent advantage uh, in coverage. You're going to be able to, to cover a lot more ground and, and you know, shrink that window uh, down the seam much more than, than a guy with shorter limbs, shorter arms. Um, it, it, Bush, it, he doesn't have the greatest size, and that certainly is an issue. That, that might be something uh, compelling for a team. But at the same time, um, it, it, it's getting so hard to specialize and, and create enough sub-packages on defense uh, speed is ultimately the one common denominator that you need uh, among everything. Coverage, um, you, you, you can bracket coverage. A zone-based team like Pittsburgh, um, you can get away with that to some degree. At the same time, there are field-stretching tight ends that you might have to bring down a safety to. It, to some degree, you're not going to be able to find a 6'5 defensive lineman uh, who can turn and run with a guy like Rob Gronkowski in his prime. I mean, right. that's just the inherent advantage a, a, an offensive player, particularly a tight end, has. But if you get a guy that can keep up, um, you know, play underneath him and, and make that window really tight up top, you've got another safety that's over the top that can either clean the guy's clock or take the ball away. So it, it's it's not so much his skill as it is his, his presence and his awareness. And I, when I see uh, Bush play, and I'm, you've probably watched him way more than I have. When I see him play, I see a, a kid that really knows what to do on the field. He sure does. Obviously, yes. He is extremely important for a linebacker. And I'll, I'll take you know, 15 stellar plays against the run versus one 30-yard completion uh, you know, down the seam to a tight end of the game. I'm okay with that. that that's yeah. football today. Yeah, no, and I, I completely agree with, uh, with that. I think that's exactly where he is. I have to ask you about Le'Veon Bell. Um Fourteen and a half million. I've always maintained he'll never get that money back. And to his credit, he signed a contract where, guess what? He's never going to get the money back. Uh, it doesn't appear that'll be the case. Um, I, you know, lots of people saying lots of different things uh, in regards to his contract. What I said uh, in this segment and in others, his deal is going to be unique. There are going to be things with his deal that we haven't really seen before. And the fact that the Jets gave him a guaranteed roster bonus for 2020, I think, qualifies. Um, doesn't really seem to be much of a point of, of giving a guy a roster bonus that's guaranteed after five days uh, right. from when he signed the contract. That's the difference, I think, between the two deals. Ultimately, um, it, the, the numbers that I've seen, it, it appears – Bell has more guaranteed money than what the Steelers uh, are reported to have, to have offered him. Right. Um, but the, the price in which that Bell had to pay to get that 
makes it seem kind of nominal to me what that difference really is. And let's compare apples to apples. You can't say the $14.5 million um, is, is necessarily specifically um, on, his, on his tab, so to speak, because otherwise he would have signed the contract the Steelers gave him, and he'd be playing on that now. That's important because with the offer the Steelers would have given him, um, he's scheduled to hit free agency once more before he turns 30. That's right. With the, deal he has, with, with the deal he has with the Jets, he's on the back end of his career. And I know that that seems odd that there is such a huge difference between 29 and 30 in the NFL, but there is. Adrian Peterson put up pretty good numbers last season. Mm-hmm. He got $8 million over two years. Yes. Why? Because he's 32 years old. Right. That's really what it comes down to. So Bell missed out on one last chance to, to score a larger deal in free agency. Um <clears throat> Not that he topped what he got from the Jets, or he would have had with the Steelers, but you know there's a big difference between three years twenty million and two years eight million. You know, I, he could have been able to tack on another one of those contracts. Whereas then, if he's still playing, he's in Adrian Peterson territory. He's not going to get more than you know three four million dollars a year right. uh, on the back end of his deal. So I think ultimately, um, <clears throat> I've said this before. I don't believe players get better at football by not playing football. I don't care whether he has wear and tear on his body or not. Um, if you're not used to that, if you're not used to the banging, if you're not used to the, the explosive movement that you have to have to play football, you know you have more of a risk of getting hurt in, in sure. minicamp and training camp than you do on Sundays. Right. And statistically speaking, that is absolutely the case. And, and there are many of trainers that will suggest a big part of the reason of that is atrophy. They, they don't have enough conditioning to simulate what they have to go through on the field. If you just, you know, you great, you're not getting hit. I understand that. Your, your head is safe in that regard. But ask Des Bryant. Des Bryant practiced, what, three games with the Saints, or three practices right. with the Saints before he blew out his Achilles. Right. It's not a question of wear and tear. It's just a question of his body wasn't prepared for it. And he had been... NFL inactive for for ten months. Bell's going to be well over a year by the right. time he gets on the field again. Right. Um, I, I, to me, I think it, in the end it's a wash. However, yeah. you know whatever dollars we want to move from one uh, uh, ledger to the other. However, it is we want to define virtually guaranteed, practically guaranteed, expected to earn. All of that said, I think that all things considered, both of those deals were essentially the same. Well, to I was, me, that's a lot of the bell. Uh, I mean, I always do respect somebody, and, I, and, and we'll end it here, but I always do respect somebody that does bet on themselves. Like they have enough confidence in themselves that they're willing to take a bet on themselves. And, I, and he did do that. Now, that part I will give him credit for. I mean, in, but in the end, $14.5 million is still $14.5 million. But I think he, of it this way: he, he very easily could have played for fourteen and a half million and then signed the same deal with the Jets this year. You know that that's the part people don't really seem to want to discuss. Him sitting out a year didn't do anything for him. And statistically speaking, the odds of suffering a career-ending injury on the field—I know we we saw that happen with Ryan Chazier—but the odds of that are extremely low. We saw Earl Thomas get significantly injured. We saw Earl Thomas throw a fit about it. We saw Earl Thomas protest a contract he signed. And look at the deal he just got with Baltimore. He didn't yeah. lose anything. No. If anything, he got most of last season off because he got hurt. Right. It benefited him to get injured in a lot of ways. Right. And people just make too much out of the injury thing. And I, I, it is prevalent. It does happen. The frequency of major injuries in the NFL is not nearly as prevalent as people think that it is. And most of them happen in minicamp and training camp, which Bell hasn't participated in I don't know how long. Just keep that in mind. When was yeah. the last time Bell went through a training camp? Uh, 20- I- I think he's driven. 15? I think he's driven by it. 
Uh, so maybe, maybe. Well, Trump's out there a ways. He's maybe. probably somewhere else on his jet ski down in Miami. It, it, overall, I you know I, I worry about him in, in a, a health sense, not because I believe the reports that he's fat or anything like that. I don't think that's the case at all. Right, I just think yeah. that your your joints, your limbs, your ligaments, um, they need to be conditioned to cut as explosively with as strong of a body that Le'Veon Bell has. Uh, it, it takes a lot to get ready for that. It yeah. takes a lot to simulate that. That's why you see so many ACL tears, uh, Achilles ruptures, things like that in training camp. Guys aren't used to running and cutting at that speed. Uh, they need to be in camp. So I, I, I hope he's right. I don't want to see him get hurt. I hope he's ready for it. But that's what, you know, it, to me, the, the gamble of injury, you never can avoid it. And he didn't, Bell didn't avoid anything. Um, he'll end up, you know, maybe making a few million more dollars and that's worth it to him. But, he would have had it earlier. He would have had uh, more opportunity to get more money at the end of his career had he signed with Pittsburgh. So all things told, I agree with you. I'm glad he bet on himself in that sense. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to see him get paid because I think he's a great player. And, and mm-hmm. you know, bottom line, he's, he's a good guy. I know people don't think that, but he's a good guy. Um, I, I hope he does well, but I, I can totally see this not working out real well for him either. Well, I'd like to keep going, Neil, but Mike Trout's holding on four and wants to discuss how to spend his money. So. <laughs> Tell him he spoils me that $20 million I lent him a while ago down in Cabo. Uh, I'll, I'll bring that, that up. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure he remembers it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, he better. Neil, thanks. Thanks, guys.